Well, good morning. Uh, my name's Dave Stoneley, and I'll be reading scripture today. And it's from Luke 10, uh, verse 21 to 24. I need these to read, so here we go. At that time, Jesus was filled with the joy of the Holy Spirit, and he said, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, Thank you for hiding these things from those who think themselves wise and clever and for revealing them to the childlike. Yes, Father, it pleased you to do it this way. My Father has entrusted everything to me. No one truly knows the Son except the Father, and no one truly knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And when they were alone, he turned to the disciples and he said, Blessed are the eyes that see what you have seen. I tell you, many prophets and kings longed to see what you see, but they didn't see it. And they longed to hear what you hear, but they didn't hear it. Hi, friends. Good to be with you today. If we've yet to meet, my name is Luke. I'm on our pastoral team, and we're going to continue today in our journey through the Gospel of Luke, as we just heard from our friend Dave Reed for us from Luke chapter 10. You know, pastors, uh, they can be guilty of boring people sometimes with too many reflections from, from their own lives. And I'm sure that at times I am no exception. Uh, but you're gonna have to forgive me today because we've just heard something from Jesus in Luke chapter 10 that reminds me of a recent event in our family's life that's kind of unavoidable. A few weeks ago, uh, my wife, Sarah, was overdue with our second child, and the, the anticipation was growing uh, hourly. We expected to deliver at the hospital, but our baby had other ideas. And without going into too much uh, detail, it was 45 minutes, that's it, from the first contraction to holding our baby uh, in our arms. Heroically, uh, Sarah gave birth in our empty bathtub with only uh, yours truly uh, to help, meaning that I, I literally caught our baby. Uh, we tied off the umbilical cord, and then we waited for the paramedics to turn up. Thankfully, Sarah and the baby were healthy, and I didn't collapse. As we've shared uh, this story with people over the last month or so, a few people have stepped out and praised us for how we handled things. And of course, they should rightly praise Sarah. But I'm not so sure how much credit I'm due, if any at all. It's hard to imagine unless you've been in a situation like that. Uh, but in many ways, our daughter just happened to us on that day. We couldn't prepare for that sort of arrival we had no expertise to guide us, and we barely had time to call 911. And so much of our daughter's arrival was out of our control. We simply had to react and to receive her on her terms. I share that story because whenever we read the, the Gospels and we meet the real Jesus, we're always faced with someone who arrives on his terms not on our terms, someone that we simply react to one way or another. The phrase 
an inconvenient truth was coined in reference to climate change, but occasionally it rings too true for, for Jesus also. Just listen to some of what Jesus says to his disciples here. He says that it's the childlike, not the powerful or the heady, who are eligible for blessing. In other words, God's grace and love doesn't come your way because you've got something to offer, but because you're willing to trust as a child trusts a parent. And that's problematic. That's at times inconvenient for a world that is buried under millennia of you only get what you earn or societies that are, are set up solely to favor people in positions of advantage. Jesus also says, as we heard in no uncertain terms, that God has put everything under his power and that it's him, Jesus, and him alone who puts the creator of all things on display in high definition. So the remarks that we often hear, even today, about Jesus being simply a wise teacher among many or just an outstanding moral example, they don't really square with the histories like these that we find in the Gospels. Jesus doesn't give us all that much wiggle room when he says, in effect, don't guess about God, look at me, and you'll get the full picture. On top of all this, Jesus adds that his disciples and through them to us today are blessed because all manner, as we heard, all manner of holy and influential people were desperate to see and to hear what, what was seen and heard by Jesus' disciples and what has been handed down and experienced by us today. Which is why I suspect that he begins this little aside with joy and gratitude. It's a remarkable uh, scene in Luke's gospel with, in a sense, all of history converging on Jesus. Not to mention, it's this rare moment where we see this explicit mention of Father, Son, and Spirit all densely packed, indicating perhaps that a closer look is wise. So if Jesus is full of joy about the reality that he's opening up on his terms to us, what does that mean for those who have welcomed him? There's two phrases that stand out here when we kind of ask that question. First, when Jesus says this, my father has entrusted everything to me. And the second phrase that stands out when wrestling with that question is, blessed are the eyes that have seen what you have seen. Let's take that first statement from Jesus. My father has entrusted everything to me. You might remember this famous scene from the Lion King between Mufasa and Simba as they look out over the savanna and the father says to the son, everything the light touches is our kingdom. And then something to the effect of, and one day it will all be in your hands. Or pause, I suppose. Or maybe you'll know that really silly scene in Monty Python's Holy Grail, where a medieval lord tells his timid son, one day all this will be yours, gesturing out of a castle window, to which the son replies, what, the curtains? 
not by much, but, but the language that we just hear in those two scenes gets us a little closer, maybe a little closer to Jesus' meaning because it uses a similar grammar about authority and entrustment. Jesus' disciples know how authority, wealth, and power works around them, most often moving down family lines. And so Jesus uses similar language to get his point across. When the Gospels speak about Jesus' sonship or Jesus speaking about the one he calls Father, it's often to do with what we might call legitimate claim. Not some kind of greater or lesser family position, as we sometimes think about Jesus' Father and Spirit. Maybe the closest colloquialism that we have today is like mother, like daughter, like father, like son. What the parent has, the child has, to no lesser degree. We hear the same talk in Matthew when Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Or in John, when Jesus knew everything had been put under his power. What we have to get our heads around is, when reading the Gospels, is not so much how the Godhead works, as if we could ever figure that out. But that when Jesus says everything has come under his power, he means it. And in these histories, he backs it up with proof because he does things that only the creator of heaven and earth can do. Paul says later in his letter to the Colossians, in Christ, all the fullness of God has come together in human body. So when we take Jesus seriously on that level and really listen to what we hear in scripture, and we stop reading him as simply a kind of self-help guru or a fairy godmother, remembering that this is God in the boat, this is God on the path, this is God at the table. Our faith begins to take real shape, meaning we not only trust Jesus to help us live a good life or to marginally improve our life or even to get us to heaven, we begin exploring the trust of Jesus with much, much more. Because as he says, my father has given everything into my hands. What do we mean when, when we say everything? And what would it mean to trust that everything is in Jesus' trustworthy hands? We could start by saying that everything literally means, for Jesus, everything. Our planet, our solar system, the vast array of space and everything that fills it. And that gets the imagination going a little bit. But coming a little closer to home, we could begin by talking about trusting Jesus with the contents, not just of the universe, but of our hearts. Like, Trusting Jesus with our mistakes, believing that he can handle our blunders and, and isn't losing sleep over them. We could talk about trusting Jesus with our future, whether it looks bright or bleak or is blanketed with uncertainty. We could talk about beginning to trust Jesus with every detail of life that we can't control, from mortgages to marriages to miscarriages 
to mental health to, in the end, our mortality. In short, if everything really is in Jesus' hands and Jesus' hands are trustworthy, we are invited to trust without conditions. And that, it seems, is much of what a life of faith becomes, a growing trust in Jesus with increasingly few conditions, giving Jesus the chance day after day to demonstrate, to prove, we might even say, his trustworthiness. Of course, uh, we all know that at times that we don't give Jesus much of a chance to, to demonstrate uh, his trustworthiness, to earn our trust, because we like to take him on our terms, not on his terms. We'd rather live under the illusion of our own control, that our, our intellect, as Jesus specifically mentions here, or our perceived power over ourselves or the world around will mean that we can cheat or evade our problems, problems including death. There's plenty of religious type practices that are around promising to offer us a sense of control, but look closely and most of them come down to you and me being in the center of the universe, trying to bring everything under our power and working little tricks to make things bend to our will or to feel as though things are bending to our will. But sooner or later, we learn that no amount of research, no amount of meditation, no amount of manifesting or self-improvement satisfies our questions or the reality of our needs. And so a Christian is someone who is less interested in little tricks of control or marginal life improvement, and someone who is becoming less anxious about that lack of control because of Jesus. A Christian is someone who trusts the one who has, as the old children's song goes, the whole world in his hands and chooses each day to believe it when the rubber really hits the road and when the control is lost and the tricks don't work. Of course, of course, that's, that is easier said than done when the mortgage payment is overdue, when the marriage is falling apart, when the miscarriage is fresh, when our mental health is spiraling. But as a widower recently said to me in a moment of despair and desperation, it's just like the disciples say elsewhere, who else can we turn to but Jesus? Jesus is the one who has the words of eternal life. I don't. Kirsten reminded us last week that, that Jesus isn't interested in just a slice of my life. He wants the whole pie. And at risk of overextending the metaphor, uh, as creator and sustainer of everything, Jesus is the only baker. There's no other chef in the kitchen. So when Jesus says, my father has entrusted everything to me, we are invited then to trust Jesus with increasingly few conditions, 
as we grow up in faith. Which leads us to that other standout phrase. Blessed are the eyes that have seen what you have seen. As Kirsten also said uh, last week, letting go of our perceived control can be a rough detox, but it does lead to joy. If we're tempted to receive Jesus with a kind of reluctant resignation of trust, Jesus' words about blessing next are, are quite striking. Notice that Jesus isn't melancholic or unconfident about things. He's got this joyful spirit, this buoyant thankfulness. Your eyes are blessed, he says. Blessed. Because even if life is going sideways, or if we feel too simple or inadequate, none of that indicates the reality of our relation to God and eternity through Jesus. Expect to face some trouble, but take heart. In the bigger picture, I've got trouble beat is something that we hear from Jesus in in John's gospel. My yoke is easy. My burden is light, we hear Jesus say in Matthew. And we can't know for sure, but I have a really hard time hearing the words, and Jesus full of joy and of the Holy Spirit, and not imagining him in this scene, beaming as he slaps the back of Peter or John with the confidence and hope that only God could strut around in. Now, again, that's not to say that there isn't room for doubt or sadness in the life of faith, of course. Even the most admirable of Christians feel the heaviness of trouble. You only have to read Paul in Corinthians, who at points sounds like someone very likely clinically depressed. Or you can read Mother Teresa's personal journals to see how dark things can get uh, for people of faith. Even John Wesley, one of the greatest revivalist preachers of all time, confessed as though at times he felt like he didn't even really know God. But if we're Christian, and I say this as unflippantly as possible, our trouble is, in reality, behind us. And deep in their bones, these characters trusted Jesus and trusted that reality of blessing, even when it wasn't visible to them or they couldn't feel it. The question of whether or not will matter a lifetime from now, the dread of something happening to our loved ones, the anxiety about the future, all this stuff can get on top of us, on top of any one of us on any given day. But the Christian response is to follow Jesus into the concrete gratitude founded on him and remember that we are blessed ultimately because we are in his trustworthy hands. And that doesn't mean that we pretend the world is sunny when the rain is pouring. It's just a relentless trust that the sun is always behind the darkest cloud which gives us confidence as joy as it did for Jesus. Again, easier said than done, but let's put a little more flesh on the bones, shall we? 
a few years ago, uh, a young man joined our church after getting sober through a local recovery center. And for a few years, he was doing really, really well. But later he relapsed in a dark moment. He overdosed and he sadly died. And that's not an unfamiliar experience for recovery homes and groups, of course. But this particular recovery community to which he belonged always, always refuses to wallow in despair. Why? Because they are resolutely Christian. Because even though a battle with sobriety was lost, even though even though a life was lost, they trust. They trust that everything is in Jesus' hands and that people that they lose are still safe with Jesus. It's why as Christians, we hold celebrations of life when someone dies. It's not just because we're looking back and celebrating a life. It's because we trust the celebration of life that everything is in Jesus' life-giving hands. Sometimes, we have the capacity to say it with a, with a jubilant smile and a dance. And sometimes we'll say it with a defiant whimper. But Christians must always say it. I am blessed because I'm in Jesus' hands. So the invitation is not only to trust without conditions, but to revel in the blessing. Revel in the blessing. You know, Christians uh, used to be quite good revelers, and some are still good at reveling in different spots around the world, but around here, we can be a bit muted, can't we? Maybe we need to dial that up a little bit. Some of the first Christians in Corinth got so good at reveling in God's blessing that they would get drunk and forget the point of the meal that they were sharing together. And so Paul had to give a bit of course correction, which is where we get our instructions about communion. Imagine that for a moment. We have the words about communion in scripture because someone threw a party about Jesus, which got a little too out of hand. Have we at times course corrected a bit too much? Have we got a little bit too heady, a bit too weighed down, and need to return to the gratitude and joy found in Jesus in our Christian roots? Can we learn to revel in the blessing of Jesus again, as is our Christian birthright? How? How do we revel in blessing, the truth of the gospel? Well, we can start really quite simply by appreciation appreciation and gratitude for what's around us, the material world, and, and what's around us, the material people that are, are our friends, our, our family, those who surround us. We revel in the goodness of food as a symbol of blessing and provision from God. We revel in a moment of laughter with a friend because Jesus played a joke on death. We let every moment of enjoyment sink in. We are present to it as a reminder of the concrete reality of God's eternal blessing of life over death. This week, our ministry team is throwing a party to celebrate the work 
that is being done in a hard season of pandemic. We're handing out silly awards. We're gonna eat really good food. We're even getting a pandemic pinata and we're gonna beat it to smithereens in celebration that we are coming through something together. And we'd be poor pastors if we never partied. And we'd be a poor church if we didn't either. That's why today, uh, in, the, in the afternoon, we're, we're throwing a barbecue in the park. Free food, everyone is invited, why? Not just because it's the end of summer, not just because you know, we've been distanced for a while and we can, we can be together outside safely. No, but because everything, everything, everything is in Jesus' hands. And because of that, we're blessed. Of course, sometimes reveling, uh, like I said, is jubilant. There's a dance, there's a party. And that's reveling. Sometimes reveling and blessing is just about sitting in a peace that passes all understanding. And that reminds me of a story that I read recently of a Christian who was scheduled for execution a few hundred years ago. And on the morning that the axe was about to fall, the guards had to wake him up to inform him that his execution was being postponed till later in the day. However true the story is, the story goes that the man rolled over and asked the guards to return later and to wake him up again because he'd quite like to get a little more sleep. That's someone sleeping peacefully because they know that everything, everything is in Jesus' hands. Please don't misunderstand me. It's not easy to trust Jesus when we see the harsh realities that the people of Afghanistan are yet again facing. And we're reminded of how futile our efforts feel when we are trying to stop suffering and injustice. It takes a growing trust without conditions during earthquakes and wildfires and overdoses and oncologist appointments and pandemics. This, however, friends, is no self-help movement. The stakes are higher with Jesus. But Jesus faced his death with confidence. He faced his abandonment and torture with an assurance of security in the end. And if we follow Jesus, we can each face life and death with the same confidence that in the end, nothing will slip through Jesus' fingers. So our invitation today is to open our eyes, open our ears in childlike simplicity and to trust without conditions and revel, revel in the blessing.